Let's go to Revelation 21, chapter 21. Here we are. It's the end. It's the final. Fitting chapters to bring to a finale. So I'm going to show you the four scenes that this um, goes through, and then we'll talk about why this is fitting and what this is all about, okay? So first, what we're going to see is we're going to be introduced in verses 1 through 8, the new creation. So there is a new heaven, there's a new earth, there's a new Jerusalem. We kind of get the overview of what's going on and what that's going to look like. In verse 9, we're then drawn toward the city, New Jerusalem, because this is really all that gets the attention in these chapters is the new Jerusalem, this city. It's as if it's the center, if not the vast majority of what the new creation is. So we're brought to the new Jerusalem, the very epicenter of the new creation, and we get to look at it from a distance and see what it's made of. And I don't just mean concrete made of, but what is the quality of this place? What does this place welcome? What does this place foster? What is it made of? Then in verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 22, we will then enter the city itself. So you see, we're kind of like this broad view. Here's the city. Now we're going to go into the city, and we're going to see what's in there. And then in 22, verse 6 to the end, the book concludes. It gives us some closing comments, and it basically is inviting us, the hearers of the book, the readers of the book, inviting us to live in the new Jerusalem forever and ever. So that's the overview. Now... A fitting finale to the Bible because we have a new creation. There was a first creation in Genesis 1. And in that first creation, we have a picture that's given to us. God does his creating, and in this picture, we see something that we are not familiar with to the degree that it was true then. Heaven and earth were one. It was not this hard thing to mix like water and oil, but heaven and earth were in union and harmony in the original creation. And the epicenter of this heaven and earth union was the Garden of Eden. And here we find that heaven, God's realm, and earth, man's realm, humanity's realm, they were together. They were integrated. It wasn't like a thing where I'm on earth now and then I'll kind of climb some stairs. I'm in heaven now. They were all once that everywhere you went on the planet was heaven. And everywhere you went in heaven happened to be physical earth on the planet in which we were made. In fact... This is looking like a a marriage between heaven and earth in which they were one and God never wanted to be separate. And the seven days of creation are, like the Hebrews did, a seven-day marriage celebration in which God is creating and celebrating this union of heaven and earth. I've created them to be together and I always want them to be together. And then at the very penultimate moment of this celebration, he takes the humans. And where we read in Genesis 2 verse 7 that God took the human, Adam, out of the earth or out of the Adamah. So in Hebrew, earth is Adamah and human is Adam. So that the human is taken out of the earth. And then it says that he breathed into Adam the breath of life, so that we are made from earth by heaven. Our substance is earth, but it was enlivened with the breath of heaven itself. 
we were always made to live in the cohabitating heaven and earth. And so this is the picture that we have at the beginning. But as we know, the story doesn't stay that nice. And this picture gets shattered by the mistakes of humanity who say we don't want anything to do with God at this moment. And this picture gets shattered into thousands and millions of pieces so that what was once a picture now becomes a puzzle and fragments litter the earth everywhere. And we go through the biblical story and like pieces of a puzzle, we pick up a piece of God's promise here. And then we pick up a piece of human hope right here. A promise, a hope, a hope, a promise. Everywhere there's these pieces and we we try to put them together like here's our hope, here's God's promise, but they're not really fitting together. And it seems like the whole story is trying to get these things together and it never happens. And then every now and then, oh, a hope and a promise come together. And everyone gets excited. God is real. But then we're trying to get more. But slowly, 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 we begin to see what the picture used to look like so that we have an idea of how to get there. Prophets describe it. Jesus lives it. The apostles preach it. And eventually, more and more come, and we begin to see more promises and more hope put together so that the picture is starting to be complete once again. And what we see in chapters 21 and 22, the end of the Bible, is the picture is complete. The puzzle pieces are finally brought back together. And we look at it and we say, there it is. Heaven and earth are together. And for 2,000 years, we've been praying as Jesus taught us to pray Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, heaven is the place where God's reign and will operate unhindered. Earth is a place where humanity gets in the way. His will is being done in heaven, yet there will be a day when it comes to earth and happens on earth. This is the picture of Revelation 21-22. Our 2,000-year-old prayer is fulfilled. Hope and promise come together. And all along, the two pieces of the puzzle that just seemed to be the hardest to fit together was heaven, the realm of God, and earth, the realm of humanity. And they just never were able to get that. And then finally, here we have it. We found it the last piece of the puzzle. And it all lights up with the life and glory and beauty of God. So that's what we are seeing. His kingdom has come, his will is being done on earth. So let's read the first eight verses and get the overall scope before we enter the city. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. First, you should notice, heaven comes to earth. It's all coming down here. Always a question. New heaven, new earth. Does that mean this one gets completely dismantled and done away and a new one is made? Or does it mean that this one is renewed, sort of reformed, reshaped, resurrected, much like the body of Jesus was resurrected? Um, If you want to hear a bit about that, you can go back to our second Peter series and listen to chapter three. We talk about that. Um, Another thing you notice is that it's a little bit different. There's no more sea. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what I wanted us to see first and foremost here is this really confusing idea that the new Jerusalem's coming down as a city, but then it says it's adorned as a bride for her husband. But this is the point we need to see, is that when heaven comes to earth, it's as if a wedding is happening. What is heaven like? Will St. Peter be at the gate as a bouncer? You're in. I don't like you. Get out. Are pearly, glistening, golden streets going to be lined with your dream mansion? Are naked cherubs going to tranquilly pluck soft harps on fluffy white clouds? Do dogs go there? So these are questions that are totally misguided because scripture does not care about these questions. What it does, though, is want to say in this passage, what is heaven like? This is what it's like. It's like a wedding. The kind of wedding that the Jews knew how to do properly. Week-long festivity where their people are just eating and drinking and dancing and socializing, and nobody's working. It's a holiday. Someone is getting married. That's what heaven is like. But not just any wedding. This is the wedding of two entities that once were in love, separated, got a brutal divorce. One hated the other so much that they killed the other. The other comes back to life and then says, I still want to marry you. And finally, the love is reciprocated. That's the kind of wedding we're looking at. One that is storied with tons of drama, a saga, a great love story. 
that was <laughs> unbelievably happening. So, the beginning marriage, as we said, Eden was heaven and earth together. Humans made out of earth and filled with the life of heaven. This is the way it was supposed to be. But then, heaven and earth were one, but then earth says to heaven, I don't want your influence anymore. I don't want you reigning over us anymore. We're going to go eat with the serpent at the tree of knowledge, not with God at the tree of life. We, earth, we are going to kick heaven out of our realm so that we can rule our realm with our judgment, not listening to God. And so the humans and their realm, earth, kicked heaven out. This was not a mutual divorce. This was earth saying, bye-bye heaven, bon voyage, we're doing this our own way. It wasn't very pretty though. We didn't know that we needed God. We didn't know that he was the glue holding everything together, that Eden would become a wilderness without him, that humans would become these heavenly beings to these earthly beasts that Cain would kill Abel immediately, that more murder would happen, that violence would get so bad that the flood would have to happen. We didn't know how much heaven, how much earth needed heaven, how much humans needed God. So what does heaven do in response to the divorce? Heaven pursues earth. Heaven rescues Israel from the exodus, in the exodus from Egypt. Heaven then comes to live with the Israelites in a tabernacle in which there, this little cubicle space in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies is where heaven and earth, the last remaining point where they touch. And so that's why they have all these laws protecting this area. It was rare. It was special. Heaven and earth met there in the tabernacle. But then Israel, like Humanity before was unfaithful. Israel pursued other lovers. Earth once again said, heaven, you're nice, but we don't need you. We're going to find other lovers. And so once again, earth went its own way. And heaven sent yet another attempt to bring the love back and sent Jesus. And here heaven is pursuing earth in and through Jesus And as the tabernacle is the place where heaven meets earth, it now moves from the building to the body, to the person, to Jesus, that in Jesus, heaven is touching down on earth so that now the union is now moving where Jesus goes. And it shouldn't surprise us then that if heaven is invading earth in and through Jesus, that we see the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, the mute speaking, that we see demons being cast out of people who are oppressed by the demons. It shouldn't surprise us that we see that. And furthermore, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus acted like heaven on earth where the religious institution said humans can only find forgiveness by bringing a sacrifice to the temple, Jesus said to a lame man, get up and walk. Oh, by the way, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leader said, who is this guy? Only the temple can forgive sins. Then Jesus does what the temple also is supposed to do. Sinners bring their sacrifice and eat it with the priest so that they're eating with God. Jesus sits at common tables outside the temple and without a sacrifice is eating with sinners as if they're forgiven and being restored to God. Sinners eating with God. 
And this is why the religious leaders are like, uh, that's temple stuff. What are you doing, Jesus? We don't like you. Heaven was invading earth, and it was breaking all of earth's rules. And some were beginning to see and know. And then just to change our mind about God, Jesus dies for us. Because greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And then he rises And that was heaven's pursuit of earth. And after he rises, a few start to see what's happening. They begin to connect the puzzle pieces. God's promises came to us. I can connect my hope to this. Starts with 12. It grows a little bit more. Soon there's a church. Thousands, millions. And slowly, 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 earth begins to melt before the love of heaven And parts are now connecting. Here we have a spirit-filled believer. And here the Holy Spirit's working in this believer's life. And it's in these these individuals, heaven is connecting to earth again. And then we come together in churches. And that's where we see heaven connecting to earth again. And so it's like a temple, but it's also like Jesus. Because then we move outward and we take heaven with us wherever we go, seeking to bless people who are in more of a hell than we are because we're in more of a heaven, and trying to bring that wherever we go. This is now the small but yet powerful response of earth to heaven. And so that this is happening until finally and eventually we come to these chapters and heaven will win once and for all. It will have the last say. It will say, like in verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Not just in a temple anymore, not just in Jesus anymore, not just in his church anymore, but all across the globe. The dwelling place of God is now with man. That's why the new Jerusalem is adorned as a bride for her husband. Heaven and earth will be reunited, if you want to say, in holy matrimony. Yet this is not like a marriage anyone has seen before. It'll be wild, celebratory awesomeness. And it's likely never going to end. Don't strum your harps on the cloud. You got a better future than that. So in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, and you can just hear the eagerness, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Okay, so you see what's happening. The new Jerusalem is actually a person. It's a people. In the same way that the church isn't a building, but it's the people, the new Jerusalem is the wife of the lamb. It is a people. The new Jerusalem is all of God's people inhabiting the new creation. And so there's this excitement. Come and see what this people are experiencing, what they're like. Now, this is where you have to realize that we're dealing with metaphors. So this is not meant to be something that's painted. You kind of miscue the idea. This is speaking about what heaven's like. Not visually, but experientially. So we continue in verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit 
to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, and on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, and on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The city has 12 gates, the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 foundations, the 12 apostles. So here we have Old Testament believers and New Testament believers all making this heaven on earth. Verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold, by the way, this is the cheap brand, (laughs) to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, meaning its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. So in other words, it's a cube. It's 12,000 stadia this way, this way, and this way. Verse 17. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Good to know. We use the same metric system. (laughs) The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh uh, chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoparse, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made with a single pearl. Yikes, that's big. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. So we go through the length of saying each of these stones and naming them. Well, one reason is because these are the very breast, uh, the very stones that were worn on the breastplate of the high priest before God in Israel's temple. And so here we have something temple-ish happening here. It's as if the presence of God's going to be here or something. But also uh, what we have here is when it comes to the glory of God inhabiting the earth, It's beautiful. It's multidimensional in its colors. You see, we often think that truth has to be ugly. You know, it's either true or it's not. And we are so severe and we so polarize subjects in this way that we can just make the world black and white, true and false, right and wrong. And we paint paint some people in black and other people in white. But in reality, truth, especially God's truth, is always beautiful. Always beautiful. And if we are sharing truth in a way that is not beautiful, that does not appeal to many different colors, if you will, then our truth needs fine-tuning. Better yet, the truth speaker needs to know the one he's speaking about. 
I'm not saying that all truth can be changed to make it sound good to whoever, but I am saying that the church needs, in America right now, we see it in our secular society too, we're getting very polarized, we need to understand how to be beautiful again. Beauty is what captures the human imagination. We like truth, but that doesn't always capture us. But if the truth is beautiful, we are getting closer to heaven. And verse 22, I saw that there was no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And you can imagine all this light coming through these precious gems, how beautiful that will be. Uh, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it, the kings of the nations, will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So you might remember Solomon sets up his kingdom, he sets up the temple, and then the nations start coming as he prayed, God, bring the nations to yourself. The nations start coming, and they come through the form of kings bringing their daughters to marry Solomon. Hey, let's make an alliance. Well, so the nations come to Solomon, and rather than leading them to the one true God, he lets them all build their own temples, right? And the whole city of Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem, gets completely idolatrized, and Israel becomes unfaithful to God and the whole love story goes in shambles, right? Well, in this Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the nations are going to come. They're not going to bring their defilements. They're going to bring the glory of God. Now, this is ringing all kinds of questions in your mind, and it should, because you're thinking, whoa, back up. There are going to be nations. There are going to be kings over these nations, and they're just going to kind of wander on into this city. What is going on? That's a great question. It's a fantastic question. so good, we'll leave it there. (laughs) Although we do see that the promise in Revelation is that God is calling us to be a kingdom of priests. Kingdom because we're royal with the king and priests because we're serving the glory and presence of God to the edges of the world. And so in heaven, it's very possible that there are going to be positions of rulership. There's going to be cultures to foster and, and, and creation to cultivate. I mean, isn't there, if it's earthly, isn't there still going to be dirt? Like, we can do stuff with dirt. Is there organic matter we can study? Is there going to be food to eat? Yes, we'll see in a minute. Uh, there's all kinds of things to do. We're not just going to be sitting around going, yay, now the evil's defeated. What do we do? We're going to be, now the evil's out of the way, seeing what God's world, as it's intended to be, can actually do. So you're going to be like, okay, this is just a tree. I knew it in my old life. It just kind of stood there, and it kind of died, and it dropped leaves, and it kind of swayed. That's about it. What can I do with it now, other than cut it down? Can it do more? Does it provide more? Is it more beautiful? C.S. Lewis, of course, fiction writer, but he's very good at making these things feel real to us. And he describes in the Chronicles of Narnia that the new Narnia... That's obviously imitating this. The new Narnia, there the mountains are higher, the fruit is juicier, the colors are more vivid. In his other book, The Great Divorce, which is a fantastic, mind-boggling, thought-provoking read, The Great Divorce, he talks about heaven is too real for some people. So real that the blades of grass feel like knives going into the human souls that aren't from heaven. They're from hell and they're going to visit heaven. That the grass hurts their feet because heaven is so dense and so real with just beauty. 
We don't know what it will be like, but we know that there will be lots to do. So we then go to verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That concludes the second scene. We come up to the city and look at it. So what do we see here? Other than the comments I made, I want to bring up this. That we talked about the marriage, right? The reunification of heaven and earth so that now God's presence is pervasive everywhere. It's not limited to a church, to a person, to a temple, but it's everywhere. It's the new creation is his presence. Well, that's what we're seeing described here is presence, the presence of God. There is no temple, it says, for God and the Lamb are the temple. There's no confining the Holy of Holies, that special place where heaven and earth met, where God's glory, the manifest weighty presence and beauty of God himself is not limited now to a little cubicle in a temple building. It's now everywhere. And this is what Isaiah 11 verse 9, Isaiah 11 9 and Habakkuk 2 verse 14 say, both of them, same prophecy, look out to the future and say, you know what? We believe that God never meant to confine the beauty of his presence into a little place where we have to go to seek him out, but that he's always been aggressively wanting to reconcile with the earth and to inhabit the earth as he did in Eden. We believe that so much that they said, a day is coming when the knowledge of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. The sea is 100% covered by water. And so the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth 100% is the point. So we then look at this explanation here in verse 16 in which the city is a cube. And he gives us a tremendous measurement. But we have to see the point behind the point. When Solomon built his temple, way back in the Old Testament... 1 Kings 6, verse 20, it says that Solomon built the temple and it gives us the measurement. The Holy of Holies in the temple was a cube, same width, height, and depth. And it measured to what today would be 2,700 cubic feet. It's a nice little spacious area. God could do yoga or something in there. <laughs> so sacrilegious. Um, but a nice little area. Uh, but what we have measured here, this cube it's not 2,700 feet, but over 3 million miles. And you're, you're going like, okay, so how big is that? Don't think that way. Think this way. It is bigger than a temple. And so when we think of what the prophet said, that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas, the point is not size, but its presence. There is no limit to the presence of God in the new heaven and new earth. Heaven and earth are one everywhere. Every square inch of God's creation full of his presence and glory and knowledge so that wherever you go, you're with God. You know God. You're seeing God. That is what it looks like in the new Jerusalem. This is for another study, for your own study, but there's one scholar, I footnote it in the notes if you want to look at them later, um, 
One scholar suggests that the new Jerusalem is the new heavens and earth. That they're not separate things, but that it is the whole thing. And he has some interesting arguments for that. Presence everywhere. Verse 20, verse 1 of chapter 22. So now our third scene. We've had a wedding. Heaven and earth come back together. Presence of God everywhere, covering everything. And now, give us another picture. What's it like in the city? It's like Eden was. The Eden we lost will be restored. 22 verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were good for the healing of the nations. No long, by the way, that's, that's a biblical thumbs up to tea, tea drinkers. The leaves were healing. Okay, just okay. Uh, verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Remember, the beast had the names of his followers on their foreheads. Well, these forehead name wearers win. And night will be no more. There will be no need of light or of lamp or of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign Forever and ever. So, that the new creation is like Eden, just renewed. So heaven and earth, God's presence, but it's everywhere. That that's the case should be very obvious when you read the tree of life. That's like John shooting a flare into the sky, a big fire and saying, Hey everybody, God's bringing the whole world back to where it started and fell from because he's into fixing and restoring things So everybody, think Eden, but this is just bigger and better. So the tree of life is there. Uh, The river is also an allusion to Eden. As you might remember, it says in Genesis 2.10 that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and from there broke off into four directions. So that the waters are to bring the life of Eden to the rest of the world. This river of life doing the same thing. You may want to read in Ezekiel, the later chapters, like the 40s of Ezekiel, um, he talks about, he sees the, the temple of the future, and he sees the river coming out from the temple, and it's filling all of Jerusalem, so much so that the Dead Sea is now living, and there's fish in it, and trees are coming up around the Dead Sea, like it's healing the world, so that as Eden went to a wilderness because of the divorce of heaven and earth, here with the reunification of heaven and earth, the wilderness is becoming an Eden everywhere again. So that's beautiful. I want to point you guys back to something, because it's like Eden, but it's not, right? It says here in verse 1 of chapter 21, so way back to our beginning, I saved this for this moment, the first earth and first heaven had passed away, and the sea was no more. That could mean bummer for surfers. (laughs) But due to the high symbolism and metaphors used here, I would suggest that The sea is a symbol for corruption. 
And here's why. Not only does Revelation use the sea very negatively, for instance, who comes up out of the sea in chapter 13? The beast, that's also in Daniel 7, beasts come out of the sea. Uh, But also, you go back to Genesis in the first creation, it says in verse 2 that there was darkness and there was water. Just water, just the surface of the deeps, it says. And that God takes care of the darkness by bringing light, brings balance there night and day. Um, And then he deals with the waters by separating them and then putting land to kind of corral them so that the waters and the darkness do not take over in this present creation. Well, in this creation, they're gone. The sea is gone, and darkness and night is gone. So the light, which was lacking at the beginning of creation until God speaks it, and the land, which was lacking in creation until God speaks it, they are now prevailing, right? And so that the, the evil entities of darkness and of sea are gone. So there will never be a beast again rising up out of the sea because there is no more source for him to rise up out of. It's been dealt with. Furthermore, in both instances where he mentions the sea and light, it is followed up with a list of evildoers, implying that the sea is the sea because of the evildoers who do what they do to corrupt the world. And darkness is darkness because of what the evildoers do to corrupt the world. Look with me at verse 4 of chapter 21. So there is no more sea, this brief moment where God is coming to dwell with man. And then verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain or the former things. What's he saying? Those are the sea. Those things belong in the sea. And then in verse 8, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable goes on with that list of evildoers. They will be no more because there will be no more sea. With the light, it talks about the light of the city in verse 22 on. Um, But then in verse 27, we read, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So possibly, I, you know, I'm open to you guys disagreeing with me, but um, possibly there, there could be no physical sea. We don't know. But I think the point here is that the sea is the source of evil. The Jews, by the way, were terrified of the sea. Oh, and at the end of chapter 20, we just read last week, uh, the, the sea dumped its dead at the great white throne judgment. So it does seem that the sea has a negative connotation. God has to part the sea for Israel so they can be freed from the Egyptians, and the sea closes over those evil people. <laughs> um, all right, let's now go and finish this. Verse 6, 22 verse 6. Oh, so to wrap up, that's, that's Eden. It's just like the beautiful Eden of the past, but no serpent... No sea, no darkness. It's going to be good forever. Okay. So verse 6 of chapter 22. He said to me, these are the words, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Three references to Jesus' coming. Here's the first. Verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and I heard and saw them. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this 
book, Revelation, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book or for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, second reference, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed, John now writing, verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Jesus speaking again. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about those things for the churches. Uh, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now John's commentary again, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take water of life without payment. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. There you have it. As Joshua says, choose this day who you'll serve. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, reference number three, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, or as most of you know it, Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all. Amen. Loaded conclusion here. Um, We wanted to hammer what John hammered. Verse 17. Come. 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 There is a big wedding celebration that's going to happen. And you don't want to miss the union of heaven and earth. So the invitation is there to come. However, we notice that outside the city, there are the dogs, the sorcerers, the evildoers. There are three times that it's mentioned people are outside. And you might even wonder, who in their right mind? Well, those that don't want heaven coming to earth. They want to keep earth the way it is. God will grant their wish. Now, I shouldn't even say God will grant it, to be frank. I think God's trying to get them in, but they're the ones that keep saying, eh. I mean, if you're into racism... You don't want to be in this city of all nations where everyone's together and happy. Right? A person like that will not let themselves into heaven even if the gates were open forever. There is a certain kind of person and a certain quality of life that will never want the things of God. Even if they're not religious and they're very earthly like the things we're seeing here in Revelation. Even if it's just that stuff, they don't want light. Dallas Willard, some of you guys are familiar with him. He's a, he's a big name. He's died in the recent years. Big author. He, he's quoted as saying this, that hell is just the best that God can do for certain people. Hell is just the best that God can do for certain people. 
In other words, there's such an attitude in life in which you will complain and dislike everything. And so God's like, well, that's the first thing I could do that you didn't complain about. And by the way, this is what C.S. Lewis portrays in The Great Divorce. That even if the people in hell could take a bus to heaven, they would do nothing but complain in heaven and want to go back to hell. Hell is just the best God can do for some people. Conversely, heaven, Dallas Willard also says, I'm quite sure God will let everybody into heaven that can possibly stand it. Come all, come, come, come. Notice in 21, verse 25, that the gates will never shut. 21, 25, the gates are always open because there's no night. There's no reason to shut them. They're always open. Who's outside of these open gates? We see in 22, verse 15, the ones who are in the lake of fire, the evildoers. The gates are open. And God's saying, come. The gates are as open as his arms, always willing to embrace, as they were on the cross, always willing to embrace, never wishing that any should perish. But even for eternity and eternity, there is a certain type of person that could never stand heaven. And that's the way they want it. We could go another hour talking about hell and the things of hell But the emphasis in the Bible here is clearly heaven. And I wanted to stick it with it there, especially since we don't have a lot of revelation about hell, and a lot of people just kind of conjecture. Um, For one, we often think it's a place of torture. The Bible actually only says it's a place of torment. That's just one example. But, um, and they say Jesus spoke more about hell than heaven. I don't know who counts the references, because Jesus said, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like way more times than he ever talked about fire and brimstone. So I'm not sure what Bibles other people are reading. Heaven is the emphasis. Unfortunately, sometimes we are so concerned about going to hell that most people get scared into heaven. I don't know what heaven is. It's a super vague place, and we kind of think like it's out in La La Land. (laughs) There's an Oscar reference. Uh, It's out in uh, some distant place, and... uh, we can't even like fathom what's this like fleshless, physicalless place like we're floating on clouds and I don't even know, I can't relate to that. Well, you're not supposed to relate to that. That's the reason. That's a Greek mythology idea. But anyways, I don't even want to like I don't know what heaven's like, but I know that hell's really scary. Ever notice that? A lot of our sermons have more concrete imagery about hell than heaven. And so people are like, ah, that's freaky. And we like, I come to Jesus because I don't want to go there. I don't care what's up here. I just want to go there. But the Bible's more and more and more saying, wait, wait, wait. No, there's an actual message of hope here. And the hope isn't just being spared from that. The hope is that there's purpose and reason and future. And the way you are meant to live, the combination of the heaven and divine parts and and the earthly and the human parts of you coming together to bring the full human as he's created to be. We are not fully human right now because we are mostly earthly. But when the heavenly and the earthly unite as Jesus was representing, then we become fully human and in control of the creation around us as he was. You'll notice that in in the the paintings, they call them icons in very traditional churches. You'll see the pictures of Jesus with the halo over his head, but then he's holding up the two fingers because that means both worlds unite in me, heaven and earth in me. 
And we are being made into the sons and daughters of God, the Bible says, so that we too are being prepared. This is what the resurrection is about. We're being prepared to be heaven, earth people. And so there's more hope in the Bible than just, hey, escape that place. It's, yeah, that might be a reality, but this is what's in front of us. And take this vision of the future and in Print it into your minds till you start to live this so that the beauty of the gospel will win the world with open gates. And may we never shut them for anyone. Final thought. Do you feel like you're a sinner and that those gates won't let you in? Richard, you guys can come on up. Well, look what the gates are made of. Twelve tribes. Okay. The twelve sons of Jacob, the twelve tribes of Israel. Do you know what those people are? One slept with his father's concubine. Another slept with his daughter-in-law, thinking she was a prostitute. Okay, it justifies it, but it kind of doesn't. You know what I mean? (laughs) You'll think of it later. Two... Two of them slaughtered an entire village. Eleven of them betrayed their brother and only sold him into slavery because one of them said, don't kill him. These are the gates. Oh, they're open for you, believe me. Do we ever feel like we're unworthy, not because we're too sinful, but because we haven't done enough for God? Our lives haven't made a difference. We seem insignificant pieces of dust in history. Well, good news. The 12 apostles were the same. Think about it. You know Peter, James, and John. They get the highlights. Who are the rest? You deserve a gift card somewhere if you can come up and name all 12. They're lost to the unremembered obscurities of history. Only another few of them ever get more than a sentence mentioned. The other half dozen just fall off the pages of the Bible. Think about poor Matthias, who was replacing Judas. That was the last you ever heard of him. First and last, right there. One stinking verse. And the lot fell on Matthias. You are not too insignificant. Heaven is not a Valhalla of champions raising their trophies about the many that they've slain. Heaven's a place for nobodies. It's a place for sinners. Because God has always wanted humans of every kind to live where heaven and earth are one.